You're listening to Being Built. I'm Aaron Davis, founder of Reckless Tech, executive search and tech staffing firm. And I'm here with Brandon Bear. Yes. Yeah, and you're the founder of Flight Control. Yes, co-founder and CEO of Flight Control. Nice. So tell me a little bit about Flight Control. You know, traditional status quo for software developers is to deploy an application to either AWS, where you have to basically do everything yourself. You have to understand AWS and all the, you know, the intricacies of it. Or you can use a platform as a service, mm-hmm. like Heroku mm-hmm. or something like that, which you know abstracts AWS and simplifies it. Okay. But you sacrifice a lot of control. You sort of have the trade off of easy to use or full control, but and we were like, well, why can't we have the good developer experience on your own AWS account? And so you can really get the good developer experience and the full control all together. Yeah, so one of the questions I was going to ask you is why the name Flight Control, but I'm starting to get it. <laughs> I think I figured out somewhere in the profile that you were a flight fan as well. Yes, I am a pilot. Yeah, is that yes. right? How did you get into that? I flew out of the womb. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. uh, ever since I was a kid, like just always loved aviation and flying and started training when I was 15. Got my pilot's license at 17 and got, been flying wish labor since. So this idea of being able to control your environment as you're setting up from your yes. kind of just paired well with the organization that you built. Exactly. Let's talk about you then for a little bit. Then I kind of want to talk a little bit more about flight control. What's your background? How'd you, like, what were your beginnings career-wise? My original plan was to become a corporate pilot, but, you know, it takes a lot of training and, and mm-hmm. time to build up your, your flying hours to get there. And I was like, well, I'll be an engineer to earn some money, and then I can, like, switch to flying career. Right. Do um, the grind and the cube and then do yeah. the fun stuff. <laughs> So I, I went to college for electrical electrical engineering because okay. my dad was an electrical engineer. I was like, okay, seems interesting. And in the process of doing that degree over here at Wright State, I took a class on software okay. as, as you're supposed to do. And I was like, whoa, no, this is actually fun. <laughs> yeah. And so I got a job as an intern uh, doing software engineering and then been doing software ever since. So. Double E degree, but hardly ever use it. Yeah. I used to work for a double E who became a software guy. Right? It's very typical. Yes. Yeah. And actually, my co-founder also has an electrical engineering degree and is in software. Software kind of ate up the world for a while there, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of still doing that. So tell me about your then your software path. Like, then what happened? So I worked at Trimble Navigation um, okay. for about five years in the uh, Spectral Precision Tools division. Okay. So it's construction lasers construction tools for, you know, um, like laser levels and vertical lines and things like that. And so I was embedded, you know, programming microchips with C language, controlling those motors and lasers and button presses. Got kind of bored of that. I was wanting to do more creative, more visual stuff. I also like had, had found Sparkbox, which is an agency. Yeah. You know, I started there and dating. And I yeah, was like ben, seeing ben them. In the game, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do um, some really cool stuff. Yes. But... So I was seeing them and they're like, Really cool office and ping pong tables. And I'm just sure. like, I got to get in this JavaScript yeah. world. Yeah, those guys are all about uh, kind of design systems and whatever else. Yeah. I kind of had my eyes set on that. Um, ended up switching to another company in Minneapolis, doing similar embedded stuff. But then took a boot camp to learn Ruby on Rails. And that was really what taught me the foundation of web programming. And a little bit of JavaScript, but mostly Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was able to go on and teach myself JavaScript and eventually React. Yeah, all that uh, JavaScript stuff is hot these days. Yeah. Who's that Ruby shop here locally? 
little lines. I think they were they were kind of hot for a while. They, I'm the sharp on PB. They were a little software shop. That, when I was in the services business for a little while, we ran into them a couple of times. And that's all that did was Ruby and Rails. Tell me about the beginnings then of flight control. How'd that come to be? I'd really been working towards having my own company for like, I don't know, seven, eight years. Okay. That, you know, I read a book called Getting Real by okay. the Basecamp folks. Oh, yeah. I've read one of their books. Yeah. yeah. And so Getting Real was their very first book, a very small book around okay. just like how to be normal people at work like without all the bureaucracy and enterprise yeah. and stuff. And that really like showed me how that even just a small ind- an individual or a small team could have a software company that could like make good money and just like have a lot of fun in the process. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I, I could do this. So I was working towards that. I uh, ended up doing freelance consulting for about four years. So that was a really good intermediate step that yeah, you learn how to send an invoice, right? Yes. <laughs> gave me more gave me more experience with business stuff. I gave me more flexibility. I able to able to earn more money and then I'll have more flexibility in my time to like maybe not work mm-hmm. on a contract for a month or something and work on like yeah. a side project or whatever. A lot of uh, would be business people are so intimidated by being able to create a logo, organize a you know, an LLC, send an invoice, like the business stuff. I have an MBA, right? And everybody thinks that like like drug dealers know more about business yes. than MBAs do. It's like just get people to give you money. Exactly. You know, buy a pair of shoes for eighty dollars, sell it for a hundred dollars. That's it. That's all it is, yeah. right? I never had a logo, never had a website. It doesn't matter. Like get people to give you money. That's it. Yep. Buy something for a little money, sell it for a lot. And even if that's just skills, right? Yes. Every time somebody's like, Oh, can you tell me how to do my business stuff? No, there's nothing to it. There, it's nothing. Yeah. It's I recommend this- the uh, personal MBA. It's a book. Is it? Okay. Yeah, that's like the whole idea is like it's an MBA and just, you know, one book. Uh, it teaches you all like the actual stuff you need to know for business. Yeah. Just, like you're saying, like make money, make a profit. I, I don't even think it's a page. <laughs> I, I don't even think it's a paragraph. It's a, it's literally a, a sentence. Get people to give you money. Like that's it. I really think that's an MBA. Like, Without being a scam. Right. That's it. <laughs> like, like give them something of value, they give you money. That's really it. And I, I think people tend to over. Okay, right. And then you just increment from there. You know what I mean? You, it's it's literally like lemonade stand, right? And then you just and then you add the lemon wedge, and then you add the you know the umbrella, and then you add, yeah. right like yeah. that's 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 all it is. Next thing you know, you're the banana stand. Right? <laughs> then you dip it in chocolate. And then that's cool. That's a really good story though. Um, I like those base camp guys for that reason. Yeah, they, they've really kind of pared down like business out of the, like the. It doesn't need to be the Jack Welch G, Uber, Six Sigma, this and that. Just like have a business that you enjoy. Maybe it's big, maybe it's not. Doesn't matter as long as you're you're having a good time and and everyone's you know enjoying it. Yeah, I was consulting, uh, freelancing, and then I was working with JavaScript, but I really missed the developer experience of Ruby on Rails. And I was like, we really need a Ruby on Rails for JavaScript and React. That I eventually created Blitz.js. The idea at this time was to be a Ruby on Rails for JavaScript. Ruby on Rails is a batteries included framework that has everything you need out of the box. So authentication, a database, uh, sending emails, all these sort of things that that you need to just build a web application has it all included. But JavaScript is very DIY. Okay. And it's like a millions of these individual node modules that you yeah. assemble together. And, and so every app is like bespoke, right? It's like these microphones I just bought. Yeah. Now I need the mixer. I need the headphones. Yes. I need the And there's I need a the million wires. options for each one. You got to go right. research it and figure it out. And then you got to connect them together. That's right. And maybe you need some adapters or whatever. Yeah. 
and I was like, this is this is crazy. Like, I need something that's more batteries included. Yeah. And so that's why I created the Blitz. It really, like, hit off, uh, really, really, like, struck a nerve. Launched it on Twitter, kind of went viral. And so now it's like, tons of people know about it. But the adoption hasn't been there because JavaScript about developers just... They love doing their own thing too much. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> they want to buy their own cords. Yes. This is right. They yes. want to customize their own experience. Uh, so it has like twelve or thirteen thousand GitHub stars. Uh, twelve or thirteen thousand GitHub stars. Okay. Yeah. It's got some traction, but yeah. Uh, that that was really though the thing that launched my career and got me more notoriety on, on Twitter and speaking at conferences and and then that gave you a, kind of a I guess a foundation a base then to kind of do what was next. And so it was a year after starting Blitz, I think, uh, that I started thinking about Flight Control and how that would look. Ended up meeting my co-founder and then, you know, really getting that started. And so we got a lot of our first users from Blitz community and we still get users from that. And so it was it was a really good platform, both for just awareness mm-hmm. of the product, also credibility because like people had like, knew me and so even though it's early and it's like managing your production infrastructure that requires a lot of trust and so yeah that definitely like really helped to get flight control off the ground all right so you met your that's then you met your co-founder tell me a little bit about your co-founder uh he's amazing he's he's my cto okay um met him through an online entrepreneur community called mega maker oh okay relatively cool. small community and so we knew of each other on there for couple of years had seen each other on Twitter or whatever, but never talked one-on-one, like didn't actually know each other. One day when I was like deciding about the business ideas, what was I going to do? Like one day I decided, okay, flight control is it. This is what I'm going to do. The very next day he messages, messages me on Twitter out of the blue and is like, Hey, I'm thinking about building this deploy to AWS thing. Do you want to partner on it? It's like exactly the thing that I was just decided I was going to build. Really? And I'm like, like I had been hinting at it on Twitter, you know, kind of, but like not directly. And I was just like, okay, what? Like, what is this? Who is this guy? I don't know who he is. I like really high standard for who a co-founder would be because it's like getting married. But I was like, we have to talk. So talked and ended up just really hitting it off. And we were just super aligned on core values, uh, company vision, product vision, and I guess best friend. Like I get a little energy just kind of hearing that. Like that is exciting. Sometimes the sum is is you know is, is greater than the parts, right. right? I say this, but maybe I'll maybe I'll change my mind later. But I don't think I'll ever be a solo founder again, mm. or try to do that. Like I've done some small stuff in the past. Try tried solo the solo route. It's it's, it's one just, of my greatest regrets actually. <laughs> is what? Yeah, attempting to be a solo founder. <laughs> when I look back at one of my greatest failures, it's it's I, I attribute a lot of that failure to to attempting to. To, fa- to be a founder as a... It's just so tough. Yeah. And it's amazing to have someone else there that like, while I'm here re- recording a podcast, he's over there doing actual work. <laughs> yeah. Trying to kind of be on an island or whatever and just swimming in your own thoughts. It's yeah. drowning. All right. You mentioned similar core values, right? Like, what did you guys align on? Yeah, not, not just your vision, but like those kind of values or whatever. That's really curious to me. So, I mean, we, we just both have really high standards for, for integrity Mm-hmm. And like how we want to treat people, really like valuing people and and, and treating them right. Like, or sorry, internal like employees, also our customers. Um, and so, like customer support is something we're we're just value really well. Um, something we're known for. Just like wanting aligned around wanting to like do something meaningful in the world, you know, mm-hmm. and have an impact. 
tell me about the vision you guys have. I mean, we want to IPO. Yeah, someday. yeah. Like we want to, we want to, like really build this, build this massive company that that we would actually want to work for. I spent so much of my career in these boring, awful companies that's just like grinding you to the bone and just like nickel and diming you, and it's just like it's not fun. You don't have this creative, you don't have creative freedom, and you only have like clamp down on like how much vacation you can take. And, you know, it's just like hard to enjoy life. Um, and so we're like, we want to build a company that, that we would love to be a part of. You know, we really try to give people creative freedom. Just we have like an unlimited vacation, minimum mm-hmm. one month vacation per year, mm-hmm. you know, things like this. You get your ass out of the building. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Make sure you have a life outside of work. Do you even yeah. have a building? I guess that's not no, what we it's don't. about these days. Yeah. Now it's more like get offline, right? Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Stop working. Like, yeah. Do something fun, right? Do something refreshing. You've been building this thing, right? So tell me how that's going. It's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> Especially uh, right now we're in the middle uh, rebuilding the entire web portion of it, the, the dashboard. Yeah. Um, because so we launched about a year and a half ago, beginning okay. of last year. You know, what we've had so far has been has worked really well. It got us to this point. It's got us, you know, a lot of paying customers and the underlying systems, the deployment and infrastructure are all super solid. Mm-hmm. But the UI has only been designed by me, an engineer. It has much to be desired. Okay. Um, and and it still kind of feels like a prototype or mm-hmm. you know, things somewhere. And so we're losing some potential deals on it because People are like, yeah, I don't know if I can trust this. I'm not mm. sure if it's finished. And so we started working with a design agency out of Berlin last uh, December. And so they did our branding. So we've got a logo this year. Um, they've done all new marketing website and like brand identity and stuff. Mm-hmm. This website is still to be launched. Um, and then also redesigned their entire dashboard. Mm. So all new UI, UX. And it's just so, so much better nice. than what we have. But it's a ton of work to rebuild this partly because we're adding a ton of new features in the process. A lot of the critical thing or things that are really highly requested, like cost visibility of your mm-hmm. AWS stuff, which is a, a big pain point. Like mm-hmm. it's just kind of a black box. Like I've got some servers running, but like how much are they costing me? And I get a mm-hmm. bill and it's like, Oh no. Um, and so we're just like having that surface right in a dashboard of like, mm-hmm. you can see how much each service is costing you, the right. environment, the entire project. I want to be able to hover over things and see it, yes. see dollars and cents and, and, and really kind of understand at an increment and a bit level, right? Yes. Yeah. What's the hard part about that? The hard part is just all of the work. We're two or two and a half months into it and probably mm-hmm. have another, like at least a month left. Is there enough data? Like, are you able to get the right data for each customer in order to give them accurate? Yeah. Okay. So, so AWS, I mean, the good, one of the good things about them is uh, they basically, they have API access for almost everything. You can deliver, so you can great deliver for, them the right yes, information. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a matter of just getting it in front of their face in the right way. Yeah. Really yeah. The hard part is just managing the complexity of AWS. The good thing is it's stable. They don't change APIs. It is a lot of complexity to to wrangle. Well, part of you making it simple is managing that complexity for your customer. Exactly. That's the whole beauty of what you're doing, right? Yep. So as you're working through this big UI redesign, you're also adding a lot of features. How have you determined which features to prioritize? Are you releasing them in increments? Are you building them a little bit at a time? Or are you putting together a big batch of features all at once? Or how are you going about that? So the the first part of the things that we're adding is feature parity in the UI. So we have two ways that you can configure a project. We have what you call infrastructure as code, where you have 
what we call a flight control.json file mm -hmm. in your in your code that can manage all of the, the configuration for your project. The other way is to configure it through our dashboard where you're like clicking a form field and, and so forth. But that UI has has not had feature parity with the flight control JSON just because it was a lot of work. It was just we were just shipping stuff fast to like we needed to see if people were even going to use the product, right? Mm -hmm. But now we've established that yes, like this is people want this, people are paying for it. And so now we're bringing the UI up to feature parity. So that right there is just a lot of complexity. So a lot of complex form fields and things that we have to build just to support that. And then so the other part of the the new features are things like the cost visibility, um, metrics like CPU and memory graphs mm. for your servers directly in the dashboard. And these are all things that people were highly um, requesting. So for example, like the CPU and memory, they weren't requesting it that much, but repeatedly they would contact support and they're like, hey, something's not working. Like, mm. like my server is like really slow or whatever. And then we go look at the, the CPU and memory charts and it's just maxed out. Uh, oh, you just need to increase your server size. Clearly they need that information in front of them where they can see it when they're like logging in, trying to figure out what's what's going on. We're doing a lot to uh, just improve the user experience of not only the initial infrastructure setup, but the ongoing day-to-day monitoring it, if something's going wrong, how do I troubleshoot that? Yeah, so you're observing demand from kind of three different ways. What you hear from customers in terms of tickets and support, what kind of failings or problems that they're running into as they're using the product, and then also kind of, you know, what they're communicating to you, what they're, what they're just saying, like, hey, could you do this next? Right. Like, these are, fe these are features we'd like you to add. And then there's the stuff that we know that they're going to want that they may not may or may not be requesting. So you have that that side of like where do you get that the innovation side where it's like hey we know that like this will be really good and we're, and we need to build it. That's that Henry Ford stuff. Like yeah, you you're, you're asking me for a you know faster horse, but yeah. I know better. Yeah, that's like, that big bet. Kind of you know stuff, we, right? we so we launched the you know a year and a half ago. We've been building almost since the start, almost two years. And until now, we've been just building foundations, mm -hmm. like just the essential features, the things that the groundwork that you have to have even to choose us over something else, getting this foundational design in place. We haven't done really any innovation yet, mm -hmm. aside from the, the initial sort of idea. So now, once we finish this rebuild, we're going to, we're going to be able to start doing more innovative stuff. Mm -hmm. Like one of the big things uh, this next is just super fast builds. So whenever you build the software, you have to build it and then deploy it. And right now, builds for projects take, let's say, five to 10 minutes, five to 15 okay. minutes, depending on the size. Then we want to get those under a minute. So how's that compare to alternatives? Five to 15 minutes is pretty typical. Um, so we're not necessarily slower. And we're building on top of one of the AWS services called CodeBuild, which is it's really one of the worst AWS services. Is it? <laughs> so... Yeah, it's some of their, like AWS has, I don't know, 200 services, and most of them are just trash. Really? Or a lot, there's many of them are, but then there's some that are just like world class. So why'd you pick the worst one? Like, what, well, it's, I, it's their only solution for this sort of uh, CI build system. So it's the only option, made sense to start with it. But what we're going to do next is build something very custom that will have much better caching and performance. You just have to do a little bit more. No, we're coding for that. That's, and you were trying to skip that in the first iteration. Yeah, in the beginning, you have to you, you have to prove out, you're trying to prove out the market. Like, 
is this even the right product for the right customers? My first couple of podcasts I recorded on phone. Yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna buy stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> Why bother? This new UI and these this kind of batch of features that you're working on. You said you're gonna be pushing those out in the next month or so, you said? Hopefully. Yeah. Yes. What will hang that up? Hidden complexity. The the things that like, oh, we think like this is all that's left, or you know, these features that oh we think it'll take, you know, a day or two days to build this thing, it ends up taking a week. I mean, it's part of the course for, for software yeah. development, but... You went through the Y Combinator program? Yes. I'm curious about that. How, what was that experience like? Y Combinator, for those that don't know, mm -hmm. is a startup accelerator mm -hmm. uh, based out of Silicon Valley. Um, it's the most popular, most prestigious one in the world. Mm -hmm. Airbnb, DoorDash, Dropbox, et cetera, have all gone through there. And they give you funding. So these days it's $500,000 in funding and a three months sort of boot camp slash training program. They take about, I think it's maybe 150 companies mm -hmm. in a batch. And that's like 1% of the applications that they get. So it's very hard to get in. Yeah, congrats um, on making that cut. Thanks. That's a good deal. So, you know, we're, this is two years ago, we were trying to raise funding. Uh, this is before Y Combinator was in the picture. We were trying to raise venture capital funding because um, my co-founder and I didn't have savings that we could just like waste on this. And I was also maintaining Blitz.js. And so like I really needed money to pay someone else to maintain that while I started focusing on, on the new thing. And we spent like three months trying to raise funding from investors and just got nowhere. Like it was just one of the most brutal periods yeah. <laughs> of the company. And somewhere in the tail end, we applied to YC, Y Combinator as like a sort of, okay, well, whatever. Like sure. I don't expect anything, but just... Put it in there. And then one day we got an email saying, hey, we want you to interview uh, on, it was like two days later. So they invite you to a 10 minute interview. If they like your application, they'll invite you to a 10 minute interview. You go, you show up, and it's just rapid fire questions, 10 minutes, and then you're done. And you wait for the rest of the day to see if you're gonna get a phone call or an email. Um, one's a yes, one's a no? Yes, email's a no. <laughs> um, you get a phone call, yes. it's a yes. Okay. And so I was like, you know, pins and needles all day, 10 p.m., you get a phone call from like this unknown number from New York. I'm like, uh, maybe this is, I don't Sounds know. Sounds like some kind of reality Answer TV it. show. And it's, yeah, it's the YC partner. being like, hey, we'd love to have you join. And so yeah, that was, that was a, a real thrill. So after that whole American Idol kind of like <laughs> scene that you just painted there, then what happened? What was the whole boot camp thing like? I think it was two or three months after that acceptance to when the batch started, because uh -huh. uh, we were one of the earliest ones to get accepted in. So they have a, a, week, a weekly plan. They basically have a calendar for you um, about what you should be focusing on each week, what content that you should be reading out of their a library of content. Um, and so they have tons of helpful resources on building a company, building a product, talking to users, raising funding. You also meet with your partners there, the Y Combinator partners every, yeah, you meet with them every week and really as often as you need to get their one-on-one -on -one advice for what you should be doing. And then they ask you to set a goal for the end of the three months about where you want to be, typically a revenue target. And so they ask you where you want to be, and then they try to help hold you accountable to that on a weekly basis. So you have your goal, and then you you back that out to be like, where do you need to yeah. be every week? If you're going to hit that, then yes. at two months, you should be here, and at one month, you should be here, and at three weeks, you should be there, at two yes. weeks, you should be there. How'd you do? Terrible. Did you? <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> That's by a mile. But, really? you, know, you know, some companies, like, you know, far surpass it. But we, we ended up having 11 paying companies okay. at the end of it. But nowhere near the revenue, you know, target. But, stars, you hit the moon, right? But, you know, it was, yeah, it, it was it was really, 
I think it was good progress for okay. us. You know, and still we have relatively low annual contract value for mm-hmm. our customers. Just because of the market that we're in, it's a relatively low cost product. And we have to, we can't like charge a premium on it without premium features, which we don't have yet. Otherwise, they're not going to use us. They're going to use... Right. Know, you're not a big business. deal product. You're, yeah. a, you're a volume product. Yeah. You know, and eventually we'll move. We'll be moving into enterprise sales, and then we'll have larger accounts that we can actually you know, charge more for. How do you go about uh, winning deals now? Are you getting it through kind of word of mouth, your Twitter feed, uh, just kind of so connections through friends? Basically, all inbound, mostly mm-hmm. organic because of my Twitter, Blisterius, and the awareness around that. Me attending conferences and speaking at conferences, and some word of mouth. So we've done very little traditional marketing or mm-hmm. sales or anything. Uh, but now we're working to actually build a, a more re- repeatable growth engine yeah. uh, for the rest of the year. It's all just product-driven sales, huh? Mostly, yeah. We're, we're doing the PLG product-led growth motion, which is the bottoms up, the you know word of mouth. And so we, re- we really need that, but then also layer in like the sales machine. Mm-hmm. And so you, know, you have both. Somebody on Twitter the other day was talking about kind of starting with the marketing and then kind of figuring out who's buying the idea. And then once you have people bought into the idea, then go build the product, right? And so there's different ways to go about it. Some people build the product and then you get a following where people watching build the product and then you go out and start marketing and selling and so on. But Rick, there's all kinds of ways to go about it. Obviously you're taking that route and then you go out and say, hey, look what we've got. Look at these goods and services, right? right? Yes. There's, there's wisdom in both. Every path is like unique. I think it's, it's a mistake to try to copy someone else's path. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so that's, that's a hard thing, like, you know, being a founder is you're blazing your own trail. Like, you can take inspiration mm-hmm. uh, from other companies, other paths, whatever, but ultimately you have to do what makes sense for you and your team and your market. You know, we were talking earlier about the MBA. One of the things that I learned in Right State, as we talked endlessly about Google, the Google way, whatever, whatever other organization was hot at the time, as we were you know, talking about this great organization, that great organization, all these companies that you're supposed to copy is that the Google, what I concluded was the Google way is the wrong way. Like, why are we talking about some organization that's got billions of dollars to burn that did it 10 years ago? It has nothing to do with what's going on right now. It has nothing to do with what any of us have at our disposal. Yes. It's not the same product. It's not the same people. It's not the same market. It has nothing to do with anything we should be mimicking. The what I took from all of those learnings and all those white papers and all those lessons and whatever, what I keep saying to myself in a different way, what you just said is the Google way is the wrong way. Insert whatever company name you want to insert. Anyway, anybody's textbook yep. is the wrong way. Your way is the right way. However, that it's. And then get people to give you money. That's my <laughs> Whatever's in front of you. I guess he's not really a friend anymore. I haven't kept up with him forever, but he was kind of a mentor back in the day. I worked with him a long time ago. But he gave me this advice. He said, when in doubt, take the money. That's what he said. That was, the, that was great business advice back in the day. That was my first MBA. It was a sales job that I did. I don't know. I, I think it was, I was still rocking a flip phone back then. <laughs> He's like, I don't know, Aaron. When in doubt, take the money. That's <laughs> his business advice to me. You can't always figure everything out. There's not always a strategic answer to everything. You know, like sometimes you just go with your gut and you kind of figure it out afterward. Speaking of sales and marketing, as you're thinking about kind of a step ahead, obviously you're still focused very much on product. You've got a lot to do still with like UI user, user experience and kind of upgrading your 
that element of your product. And I'm sure you don't want to take your eye off that. You know, you want to make the catch before you pivot, right? You know, no good leaders not thinking ahead, right? So as you think about marketing and sales and kind of getting into that whole thing, that's, I presume, kind of a new world for you. It is. I'm sure that's a little bit intimidating to yeah. think about. I've done pretty well at guerrilla developer marketing on basically Twitter and conferences and things like this. How I got, you know, voice yeah. awareness up and it's like it helps your customers are you like, you yeah. know, the persona, yes. right? Yes. But I've never had a traditional marketing or, or sales role to actually, you know, know how to like build a machine and teams to yeah. like scale it up. So I've actually recently started working with a, a consultancy called Caliber Growth, just literally started with them like two weeks ago. And so I'm getting sales training from them, building sales campaigns and outreach and stuff like this. So that's looks promising. That's kind of in the research stage still, I guess. Yeah. It's consulting with them and yeah. kind of figuring out what they're capable of and yeah. what they're offering. I've always found it really difficult to onboard new consultants in areas that I hadn't worked before, didn't really have a lot of experience in before. It's hard to know what to push back or question or, you know, right? Like I've always found that really difficult. I've had to do that a lot. There's a lot of things I don't, that I don't know anything about. In fact, almost everything. I don't know anything about most things, right? And I've held a couple of high positions a couple of times. You know, so I've had to onboard consultants that do a lot of things I don't know anything about. That's tricky. (laughs) (laughs) You got any sage advice about that? I think the the thing that I'm, I'm really like, really saying to myself is you have to face the thing you don't want to face. You have to, you know, for a lot of technical founders, sales marketing is easy to just ignore, focus on building product, all this, whatever. But like you have to face that lion in the face and like, yeah, yeah, run to the problem, not from the problem. You know what I have found to be helpful? I do keep kind of like a circle of friends of sorts that are good at different things. So I do have friends in the Rolodex, so to speak, that I will call and say, hey, I'm, I'm talking to these guys about finance and accounting stuff. Um, they're saying this. Does this make sense? What should I question? Yes. And maybe they're not an expert expert exactly at that, but they at least know how to talk about it. And uh, I found that to be helpful. Like, uh, you know, this guy's a maybe he's a, you know, a tax accountant guy or whatever. And this is kind of a finance problem. But he'll at least know how to speak to it. I'm like, I don't know about finance and accounting. At all, right? They'll at least not to speak to it. So, having some really trusted, you know, person, whatever. I have a uh, founder coach that I got like it was only a few months into the company. I was like, I need a coach, and that's just more uh, not really a business coach, but just a founder coach. Okay, more like a more like an executive coach type of thing. Yeah. So that's been she's been absolutely amazing. It's all on on just helping uh, with me and my psychology, uh, being a leader. Uh, manager, all, all of those sort of things. I have a couple like business advisors and then also a ton of investors. So we have, mm-hmm. we have a big a venture capital uh, VC investors, institutional investors who uh, we meet with like every month or two. And they've been really, really helpful. And they actually made the connection to these to these agencies. Nice. Or this, okay. this consultancy. Good. So you got some bad yeah. for you there. Yeah. And some folks you can say, hey, I'm hearing this. How would you? Yes. And then we have lost track, but I think somewhere around 40 or 50 angel investors. Uh, most of these are people are pretty well known in the industry. A lot of them have been super helpful on, on various uh, aspects. Like one was super helpful with negotiating enterprise contract mm-hmm. for the first time, things like this. Tell me about your team a little bit. 
my co-founder, Mina, mm-hmm. uh, and I, two, two founders. Uh, we have one, two, three other full-time, uh, wait, four. <laughs> it's in flux, so losing track. There's six of us full-time, uh, so four engineers besides Alamina and I, and then two summer interns and one other com- uh, engineer and consultant. Yeah, so you got like the hit squad. Everybody's an engineer, huh? Yeah, so far, yeah. So that's, that's yeah, except for me. I stopped coding full-time a little over a year ago. Yeah, but still, you're an engineer by trade, yeah. right? So like you yeah. know the space. Yeah. Is that an, as- an asset to the organization that everybody's right. an engineer? I mean, uh, well, and your customers all are too. Oh, uh, everyone's in the air. Uh, we like we're going to be needing to hire more like sales and marketing people that, mm-hmm. that are not engineers. Being a dev tool and tool mm-hmm. for software developers, it definitely I think it's important in mm-hmm. order to have a lot of expertise. A lot of, like you need to understand your customers. True. Right. Is everybody local or is your team spread all out? Yep. All yeah. Resort. Um It's me and my brother. Brother works with us. So mm-hmm. we're both here in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, co-founders in Toronto. Everybody we, else is everywhere. Yeah. We have Mississippi, Cincinnati. Actually, then one of the interns in Cincinnati. Uh, Mississippi, Texas, Spain, and the other intern is in India. So you get togethers are uh, all smiles and ways, right? <laughs> well, so we don't pay for an office. And so instead, we pay to fly everybody to a location twice a year. That's cool. At least twice a year. That's cool. Uh, for a week-long retreat. Yeah. So the last one was in Thailand yeah. back in February. And one before that was Italy. Dude, you know what sucks? Tra- uh, commuting. But you know what doesn't <laughs> suck? Traveling. <laughs> Traveling is cool. Commuting yes. is not. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's a definite upgrade for sure. Good for you, man. Well done. You know, it's super important to get that in-person connection. You just, you have to have it. Yeah, I agree, man. Like trust is built that way. It's disarming. It makes, and that conflicts are inevitable. If you're actually doing something, you're going to, you're going to have conflict. If you're just chilling on the beach, maybe not be much conflict. That's right. (laughs) Mojitos, right? White Russians, whatever. If those are the decisions you're making, you're not going to have conflict, right? But if you're like really trying to like push the limits or whatever and innovate, right? Like you're going to have conflict. You should, you should have some strains and some, uh, some difficult decisions to, to make, right? So you'll have conflicts. And when you have conflicts, if you have trust, and you've disarmed things because you've gotten to know each other and what matters to each other. Yes. You learn what each other's families are about and what each other's goals are about and hard things about each other's lives and stuff. Then uh, you can kind of take the edge off a little bit. You hear about each other's lives a little bit. Right? Oh, yeah. A hug or a handshake or whatever it is, right? It matters. It does matter. It's also just... Uh all the open space outside of work. So like when you're, when, when we're at a retreat, you know, it's like, it's the meals, it's, it's walking to and from places, whatever that you have these conversations that you would never have on Zoom because you show up to a meeting and whatever. And like, maybe you have some chip chat, you know, and we have a weekly coffee chat where we're just like talk about stuff, but there's tons of conversation that don't happen unless you're in person. We all want to do important things with our business, but we, we do work because we need to make money. And like, at the end of the day, work is a part of our lives, right? <laughs> at the end of the day, we're all just like human beings on this rock running through space, right? And so it's nice to just have had experiences with other human beings, right? <laughs> and so just the humanity of it too, just to like like chill with other human beings too, right? right? So too. Yeah, I think it's super important to enjoy the journey. As founders, we we'll probably have to be more intentional about that 
but it's easier just to be like more stressed about stuff or like whatever, right. you know, but I'm just super keen on enjoying the journey and, and not having, having this like destination. Oh, I'll be happy when this happens, when yeah, I have this much yeah, money, yeah. You know, like whatever, you know, right. like it's always going to move. And so you have to be content and happy today with where you are. Yeah. Um, even if there's things you want to change, you have to accept that there's things that you want to change and I can be happy with where I am. Contentment is tricky because contentment implies enough. Whereas as, as founders, there's really you never really have enough, right? There's a friction with being content and being ambition, right? Because ambition in, in and of itself kind of implies that you want you always want more and you're never content, right? But gratitude, on the other hand, doesn't mean you ever have to have enough. But you don't ever have to feel like you don't have. You can be yeah, super grateful and never feel like you don't have enough, right? Like you can still want more. Like you can be super grateful and feel like you have enough and feel like you don't have enough. I love it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, so I found gratitude to be that thing that can live in both. Not having enough and having enough. Because I feel like I I have enough yeah. and I don't have enough. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I feel both. Yeah. Right? I feel like I have enough and I feel like I don't have enough. I, I don't feel like neither. Right. Which is contentment and ambition. I feel like I have both. I have enough. Yes. <laughs> right. yes. totally. so I think gratitude is that kind of space where, where it's both. That's how I've resolved. I should be interviewing you. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you did. You just did. <laughs> we talked a little bit about kind of what you're trying to accomplish in the next couple of months. And maybe the next kind of period with sales and marketing being a big objective. Where do you see flight control maybe in the next couple of years? What's your vision as kind of like you get sales and marketing off the ground, kind of start to expand? Where do you see or kind of what's your goal or vision that you and and your co-founder have for flight control for the next, you know, year and a half, two year period? We'll probably go to raise another round of funding next year at some point. Um, And there's really two options for that. If we really kick off a growth engine uh, this year, and if this rebuild um, and sort of like flight control 2.0, if you want to call it that, um, sort of causes an inflection point, then we could be ready for a Series B next year. Okay. Um, like with basically hitting around a million ARR, mm. which is kind of the rule of thumb for a, a Series, or sorry, a Series A. Okay. Skip the, skip the A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just got that one in my pocket. Um, so yeah, around a, around a million AR is sort of the target for that series A. Okay. Um, but you know, maybe it ends up that that we have to take longer to to just build out more stuff before we can sort of justify those higher contract values. And so maybe we raise a seed extension next okay. year, um, where you know, seed extension for investors, it's it's uh, series A is to back up a little bit a seed stage pre-seed or seed. When you go to investors, it's mostly about story, mm-hmm. about founders and story. Are does it seem plausible that you can, that you have a good story that you're going to be able to reach where you want to say you're going to mm-hmm. go? Series B is almost entirely numbers driven. Like, mm-hmm. do you have the actual revenue, the actual growth rates, the, the good churn number, low churn numbers, all those actual numbers? Hardly any story at all. Series A is sort of in the middle between you know maybe partly still story. But you also have to have actual numbers mm-hmm. um, and solid revenue growth and whatever to, to back that up. You know, if you're not to that point yet, then we can be more on the seed side, like a seed extension, where it's just like, hey, like we have some really good metrics so far, um, even though uh, the met- the revenue itself isn't like where we want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so we just need some more some more time mm-hmm. to 
to really get there. So it kind of just depends on how the market responds to yeah. the product evolution. Yeah. And, and how long it takes us to really figure out the growth engine. What will you do then to, you know, the question was, what's your goal there? What's the challenge going to be? And then what are you going to do to, to face that challenge? Or what's your plan to, to kind of mitigate that challenge? And I guess that's, you kind of started to answer that question already, which is, I, I guess, what I'm hearing you say is you're going to see what the market, uh, how the market responds to your uh, attempt to kind of push out and, and, and sell. And then, and then what? Kind of pivot based on what the market, how the market responds to your. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really looking at how the market responds, but also we, we know that this is, there is a market for this. Mm-hmm. And so it's more about finding which segment of the market that we should be focusing on at this point mm-hmm. and how do we effectively reach that portion mm-hmm. of the market. So it's about narrowing down. Are you small, mid enterprise? And, Basically, and, yeah. And, and really, um, you know, and it's a, it's sort of a, it's an infrastructure uh, tool and you don't change infrastructure every day. Company the mailing change infrastructure every couple of years or something. Mm-hmm. You have to, um, sort of be creative and find ways to get your foot in the door without trying to just go for a whole whole hog migration. Um, and so there can be like maybe certain features that we have that we can actually just go market that specific feature because that's something they can adopt right away. Mm. And then over time you can you can expand. Mm. So like for example, we just got a uh, about a month ago we got a Series H company as a customer. Mm-hmm. So they're like they could be a public company that like that they're that big. Mm-hmm. Uh, really well known, uh, but it's just a two-person team like in a closet somewhere. Mm. <laughs> it was like that's what it seems like. I'm not, no offense to those customers, we right? Them. Right. I don't know actually what they're doing in the company, but it's a very small account. Right. But we have that. Right. We have that company money. as our customer, right. and we can expand over that. Well, we'll see what the what the future holds. I guess over the next year or so. Yeah. Well, good luck to you and your team, and. Thank you very much for being on the show. Any, any Thank you. kind of last thoughts or whatever that you want to add on? Um, if you want to keep up with me, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Flybear, F-L-Y-B-A-Y-E-R. Okay, and, cool. Um, and that's where I'm most active. And yeah, like also I'd like to say that um, like no matter what you're doing, how hard it seems, whatever you're going through, like keep pushing towards your dreams. And eventually I think you'll you'll accomplish what you want to accomplish, even if it takes longer than you think. Yeah, I appreciate that inspiration. We'll definitely, uh, we'll tag your Twitter account since that's where your kind of biggest following is and appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. All right, thanks, Brad.